kindergarten and would like to go to uh, Kids Connection, you're dismissed to do that now. It's right out these back doors uh, in, this, uh, in this room just to the west of our sanctuary space here. The rest of you turn to Luke chapter 1, and it's great to see everybody here this morning. We had a great first service. We're taking a two-week break from our study of the book of Mark. And we're doing this in order to, to, to study a couple of passages of Scripture, both of them related to Christmas. And the goal being, of course, is to set our hearts and our minds as intentionally as we can on the biggest event in human history, God's entrance into the world through Christ the Son. And if you know the story as it's told both in Matthew's and Luke's Gospel, then you know the event that we call the Incarnation, God coming in human flesh, It is an event accompanied by worship. Scene after scene after scene reveals this. The angels worship. Shepherds worship. The heavens themselves worship. That's what the the star was doing, declaring that a great king had been born. Wise men travel hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles to worship. Even wicked King Herod, he picks up on the spirit of the event, and he asks, where has this child been born that I may come and worship him also? Everybody seems to want to worship. The the unborn child of Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, still in the womb, leaps at the presence of Mary who has Jesus in her womb. And there are others, Simeon and Anna, and on and on we could go with these first couple of chapters in these Gospels telling us about the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Christmas has always been a worship event. It has always produced praise. Speaking of that, I'm reminded of the story of the elementary teacher who she gave an assignment to her class. The assignment was to draw a picture related to Christmas. So one little girl, she drew your stereotypical nativity scene with the animals and and Mary and Joseph and, of course, the baby lying in a manger. But right off to the side of the manger, she drew a short, fat figure. And the teacher asked the little girl, well, who's that, a shepherd? And the little girl said, no, that's Round John Virgin. Round John Virgin there. Funny though, from the, from the earliest of ages, we, we learn these melodies that we've sung this morning, but the, the lyrics don't always come together really until we get maybe a little bit older. One song that's not really a worship song, but a Christmas song nonetheless. I think my entire growing up years, which are still in process by the way, I, I, I thought that the lyric was Deck the Halls with Bells of Holly. Not boughs, but, but bells. What's a bell of holly? I have no idea. But I also don't know what it means. I know that I've never donned my gay apparel either, uh, but, I, but I went ahead and sang that part of the song too. And Deck the Halls is, is a good one for this because there's another line that says, troll the ancient yuletide carol. Nothing, make, nothing about that makes sense, does it? No one, no one actually knows that troll means to, to sing loudly, yet in a great stroke of irony, we, we go right on singing that, that line very loudly. And I mention all of that, and I could say a lot more about Christmas carols, but This morning, we're going to look at the very first Christmas carol, the first ever Christmas carol. 
It was written and sang by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the real mark of this song is that it is worship. It is deep, sincere, scripture-saturated worship. And this morning, we're going to study it, and we're going to see what it means, that the lyrics here contain deep meaning, and I think it will strengthen us and edify us if we understand the way in which Mary is setting her heart to worship. So if you're not there, turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 46. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke writes these words. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. This passage is typically referred to as Mary's Magnificat. And that's because in the Latin Vulgate, which is the name given to the Latin Bible, the first word of this song, the first Latin word is Magnificat. And as I said, what we have in these ten verses is a picture of the heart of Mary just on fire with praise. She is worshiping. And I want to look at her worship this morning under four headings. The nature of Mary's worship, what led Mary to worship, and then as we look at the content of her worship, what she sings a little bit about and what she sings a lot about. So what can we see about the nature of Mary's worship? First, we see that it's intense. It is intense. Notice the first two lines. My spirit magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, when you read that in English, maybe it doesn't grab you. Maybe it doesn't, doesn't come across as intense. But the word exalts or, or magnifies is the word megaluno. And that prefix mega should, should clue you in because what do we say in English when we want to say something is bigger, when it is larger than normal or louder than normal? We say it is mega. Our soft drinks are mega-sized. Our candy bars get mega-sized. Our, our, our meal deals, right, we call them mega-sized. We, we like things to be mega. When something is a mega thing, it is a large thing. So what Mary is doing here is not just exalting, but mega exalting. Her praise is large. In addition, the word that, that the prefix mega is attached to, that, that word megalune or megaluno, it, it, means, it means to grow or to cause to grow or in musical terms to crescendo. 
as if starting at some point and then extending and becoming larger and larger and larger. So the idea is that her exaltation of God is massive. Yes, it is mega, but that's not all. It is growing more massive and more massive. It's, it's ever-expanding super praise to the Lord. And then we see that word rejoices. There'll be a number of words used there, but the word rejoice in verse 47 that means to be overjoyed. It, it, it refers to an out loud kind of joy, a kind of exuberant joy that is just uncontainable. You can't keep it in. So those are the terms. Exuberant joy that bursts out in worship in a way that is not just supersized, but actually welling up and growing larger and larger and larger. So it's intense. That's clear to see. And its intensity is rooted in the fact that it's also internal. That's the second attitude of Mary's worship. It is internal. Two words underscore this. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and then my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And the term soul and the term spirit, these are terms that that speak to the inner person. And the reason that, that Mary uses two different terms is not because soul and spirit are different things. No, They are two words that refer to the same thing. But Mary is doubling down on them to to emphasize this all-encompassing sort of element to her praise. She's trying to sum up her whole inner being. (coughs) And here's the real point to be made here. She's saying her worship rises up from the inside. Worship is not something you do on the outside. It's not a performance. It's not a set of words or a set of actions. It it, it certainly becomes that. It it has an outward manifestation, but it starts down deep inside of you. Therefore, worship is not just coming to church. It's not just singing a hymn. It's not not reading words in a Bible or hearing a sermon. It's it's not giving something in the offering. It's not just carrying out a, a ritual even the Lord's table. That's not necessarily worship. Those are potential effects or activities of a worshiping heart, but they don't stand alone as true worship. Worship is the inner heart of adoring praise. The inner heart of adoring praise. That's the essence of true worship. It's when the the soul and the spirit, when they are overwhelmed, and therefore they burst forth in praise. It's an internal thing. Therefore, a a shallow sort of external observance of the birth of Christ, that's actually distasteful to God. Superficial worship finds no place in acceptance with God. Think about the prophets. Think about Jeremiah. Think about Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13. The Lord said, These people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips, but their hearts... Where are their hearts? They are far from me. Let's put that in the Christmas vernacular. These people, they they, they talk about me. They they put things about me on their Christmas cards and and they sing my carols. But they do not honor me. They have removed their heart from me. They have lights and trees and and Christmas sweaters and, and family meals. But their hearts are not actually engaged. In worship, there's no depth, there's no, there's no intensity. 
but not Mary's worship. Mary's worship is internal and intense. That's the attitude of her praise. What led Mary to worship this way? What led Mary to worship? We'll have to back up to to the verses that precede Mary's song. First, we see that this angelic announcement comes to Mary. Gabriel, there in verse 30 of chapter 1, appears to her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Whoa. What an announcement that would be. What would it be like to be on the receiving end of something like that? But notice, as awesome and as overwhelming and as unraveling as that would have been for Mary, Mary's not singing yet. Mary's not worshiping. I think there's a sort of semi-comprehension happening with her. She's, she's certainly surrendering in her response, but she's not yet worshiping. She's pondering. She, she's treasuring. She's thinking. Praise is inside of her, but it hasn't really come out yet. What causes it then to come out? Look at her cousin Elizabeth's affirmation. They're beginning in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill, into the hill country to, to a town of Judah, in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, skipping down. And Elizabeth was filled filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What we see here is that it's going to be Elizabeth's worship that leads to Mary's worship. Elizabeth affirms everything Mary has just heard from the angel Gabriel. She's validated it. She's stamped it. And I'm not sure if you caught it, but there is rich Trinitarian thinking happening here. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit when she makes these statements to Mary. She says, Mary, you're the mother of my Lord. And then she says, what was spoken to you by the angel was directly from the Lord. So this is, this is heavy Trinitarian language. Who is the Lord? Is the Lord the one who has sent the baby or is the Lord the baby? Is the Lord delivering the news or is the Lord the subject of the news? Yes, they're both the Lord. This is, this is lofty thinking from Elizabeth. This is nuanced, inspired sort of theological language here. And do I even have to mention Elizabeth's baby doing backflips in her womb at the presence of, of his pregnant aunt? It's just a crazy scene. But it, it is Elizabeth's affirming, validating response which leads to Mary's song. When Elizabeth begins to worship the penny drops for Mary. Everything comes together for Mary. Surely on her trip to see her cousin, Mary has been, been thinking and pondering and praying and reflecting upon Old Testament Scripture. Surely she's been doing those things. So when Elizabeth speaks these things to her, Mary comes out of her semi-comprehension and she explodes with joy. She has this release. She, she begins to sing the world's first Christmas song. 
And before I move on, just as a way to get real practical with you this morning, this exchange is a wonderful picture of what takes place when we are in close community with other Christians. We need fellowship. Mary, when, when she gets this message from the angel, she doesn't go off and sit alone. She doesn't run off into isolation. She seeks out her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth says these few things to her, and suddenly everything is clear for Mary. And this underscores something very important for us, is that we find the Lord mainly in community. So often the encouragement and the affirmation we need, it comes through a brother or a sister in Christ. And that's what's happening here. This is a picture of a one-on-one relationship between two believers. This is a picture of what takes place when a small group commits to meeting together. What happens is people grow in grace. They grow in the knowledge of the Lord when that happens. And that occurs because other people's experiences with the Lord have a way of helping us fill out our experience with the Lord. C.S. Lewis great author, writer, thinker. He was, he was part of a circle of friends called the Inklings. These friends would meet weekly for lunch at the Eagle and Child Pub there in Oxford, England. And it was a group that included J.R.R. Tolkien, so the author of The Lord of the Rings. Also another author named Charles Williams met with them. And Williams died unexpectedly as a relatively young man. And in one chapter of Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he reflects on the effects of the loss of Charles Williams from the group. He's writing on friendship, and he says, Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, which Ronald was Tolkien's uh, first name, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald for myself, now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. What is Lewis saying? Lewis is saying that it took a community to know all the facets of a single individual. And that when people are absent from the group, parts of other people in the group actually disappear. That it takes a community to know someone. And here's where I'm going with that. How much more then would this be true of our divine Savior, Jesus Christ. To know Him well takes other people. So a dedication to biblical community actually helps achieve this for us. It not only sort of sands off and knocks off our rough edges, it also aids in revealing more of who God is. Here's what I mean. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, the people sitting in this room they see aspects of Jesus Christ that you may not see. And you have a way of accessing those aspects by being in community with them. By hearing from them, letting them hear from you, understanding their experience, loving them where they are, being loved by them where you are. What if Mary would have said, you know, I I just want to be alone. No good, right? So she hurried to see Elizabeth. She hurried to see her cousin Elizabeth. Guys, women are better at this than we are, aren't they? They are. 
we get some sort of heavy news, what do we do? Man, we just kind of go in a cave. Like, I just need to think. I just need to think about this. Women have a way of getting together and supporting each other and, and working through the weight of some kind of news. And that's important to see here. And let me take this a step further. Again, just trying to be practical this morning. It's not that we, we just get to know God better in community, but you mustn't assume God is calling you to do something unless it's confirmed by other Christians. You don't see Mary after Gabriel appears. You don't see her immediately saying, hey, I'm going to be the mother of the Messiah. This is going to be great. No, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't do that. She doesn't really even take hold of it until it's confirmed by somebody else. So what's the lesson? If you think God is calling you to do something, it's probably best to be quiet about it, try your hand in serving and in loving people, and then wait for some wiser person to come along and say, you know, you're really good at X. You ought to do more of that. I could tell all kinds of stories about that scenario. I'll share one, because I think it's kind of funny, about C.H. Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, largest church in England during the 19th century, and he had a huge following. Thousands of people would show up each week to hear his sermons, and at the close of a sermon one week, uh, a man who Spurgeon had never met before comes up to him and said, uh, Pastor, I want you to know that the Lord spoke to me, and next week I'm going to be preaching from your pulpit. Spurgeon, a little arrested by that, said, Well, the Lord hasn't spoke to me, so no, you will not. <laughs> Just saying, there's an, uh, there, if the Lord is in this, there's going to be an affirming, confirming aspect to how this is going to go, and that's what's on display here between Mary and Elizabeth. So let's get back to the song itself. A little sidebar there. Let's go back to the song itself and see what Mary actually sings about. She sings a little bit about me and a lot about he. She sings a little bit about herself, about her experience with the Lord. Verse 48 and the first part of verse 49 exhibit this. Look at the personal pronouns there. The Lord has done great things for me. All generations will call me blessed. She's talking about herself and, and her experience with the Lord. And there's a devotional aspect to our worship that makes our worship personal. And it's important. It's important for, for it to be intense and internal. As I said earlier, worship almost has to be personal. But when it's personal, it doesn't have to be self-centered. Because while it's personal, as we look at Mary, it's also very humble. That's what we see her singing about. We see her singing about her, her humility before the Lord. She speaks of her humble estate. She's confessing before the Lord that, that she is a nobody. And she's right. She is a nobody. She's from Nazareth, a town of more than, you know, no more than two or 300 people. Not a prominent place. She's not born to aristocracy. She's engaged to a carpenter, simple blue-collar worker. They don't have any money. How do I know they don't have any money? Because in chapter 2, when she and Joseph take Jesus to the temple, their sacrifice there is a pair of pigeons. It's two turtle doves. Only the poorest of the poor brought pigeons to the sacrifice. So she's lowly. She's poor. 
There's nothing about her. There's another stroke of humility here as well. She calls God her Savior. To call God your Savior is an admission that you need saving, is it not? And to admit that you need saving is an admission of guilt before the Lord, that you are a sinner. Mary was a sinner. Our Catholic friends need to pay attention to that language in verse 47. Mary appeals to God as her personal Savior. Roman Catholics believe all sorts of things about Mary. One, one of those things that they believe is that she was without sin, that she was conceived without sin and lived without sin, and that she never died by virtue of the fact that she wasn't a sinner. They believe she experienced an, an assumption where she ascended into heaven, never experiencing the grave. So Roman Catholics would do well to see that Mary acknowledges herself to be in need of a Savior. She's acknowledging sin. Conversely, though, we Protestant people, we would do well to see that all generations will call her blessed, that she is the most blessed of all women, that that her relationship with the Lord Jesus was more intimate than anyone's ever we would do well to acknowledge the special place of Mary in God's redemptive plan. And that's what she's doing in verses 48 and 49. She's talking about her experience with the Lord and her humble position within his purposes. But we won't go too long talking about Mary. She doesn't, so we won't either. The bulk of her song is about the Lord. That's what she sings a lot about, the Lord. And there's two ways that she sings about him, his attributes and his actions. The attributes of God, starting there in verse 50, the pronouns in this song, they become exclusively masculine, him, he, 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 he. Her focused praise now is on the Lord. She praises him for his holiness, that he is perfect, that his righteousness is other than any other kind of righteousness that he is holy. She praises him for his might, for his strong right arm, for his strength. She repeatedly mentions his mercy. God's mercy is the, is the attribute that balances his power and his holiness. It's a word that throughout the scriptures, it points to his loyal love. This word mercy is always connected to the compassion of, that the Lord shares with those whom he has entered into covenant relationship with. If you you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have experienced his mercy. You've experienced his compassionate, loyal love. And as the song says, this mercy is for those who fear him, those who honor and and revere him, those who acknowledge that he is God and they are not. You see the humility there? If you do not fear God, if you do not revere him, if you do not worship him, therefore, his mercy you will not know. And let me say this, his mercy is absolutely the thing you need. If you're here this morning and it's the Christmas season and your heart is far from God, it's nowhere near worship, not even inclined in that direction, 
you need his mercy. You need his loyal love and his compassion. Because you need to be off the throne so that he can rightfully take his place there. And you can take up the task of worship. If you don't, if you don't know God through Christ, if you don't know what that means really, it simply means that you're going to put your trust in him. You're going to recognize, as Mary did, that you need a Savior. That because of your sin, you need a Savior from that sin so that you can be right with God. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And, trust, and admitting that, repenting from that, and confessing trust in him is all that that really requires. So she speaks of the attributes of God, the saving attributes of God. The other thing she sings a lot about are the actions of God. Mary here is recounting how Israel had been continually delivered and cared for by God. Bishop J.C. Ryle, he was the Bishop of Liverpool, an Anglican priest. He speaks eloquently of this. He says, Mary spoke no doubt in recollection of Old Testament history. She remembered how, how Israel's God had put down Pharaoh and the Canaanites and the Philistines and Sennacherib and Haman and Belshazzar. She remembered how he had exalted Joseph and Moses and Samuel and David and Esther and Daniel and never allowed his chosen people to be completely destroyed. She's tracing the handiwork of Israel's covenant God. Something I haven't mentioned because sitting in here and, and citing all the cross-references would take a ton of time. But this whole song is almost completely unoriginal. It's almost all Old Testament Scripture. It's a collection of different verses from 1 Samuel and from the Psalms and from Deuteronomy. The, the Old Testament is all over this thing, meaning Mary knew her Old Testament. She knew it inside and out. Mary probably a 14-year-old girl, most likely illiterate. She knew her Old Testament scripture, and she wove the word of God itself into a song of testimony that serves as a model of praise for us. That's probably my favorite feature of Mary's worship, that she is singing God's word back to him. Mary ends her hymn of praise by by declaring that God has blessed Israel in remembrance of his mercy, that he's been faithful in what he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. That's how the song closes. And she is remembering that, that the covenant promise made to Abraham in Genesis, she's remembering that promise that, that the Lord said, in you, Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And she's realizing that it is evident that in the birth of her son that this promise is about to be fulfilled. She closes her worship by declaring that God fulfills his promises always. We walk by faith, church. And this faith leans on promises. And on these promises, we can lean confidently. They will, they, they will bear all the weight that we can lay on them. God fulfilled his promises the first time in sending a Savior, in sending Christ the Lord. So will he not do it again? 
Will he not continue to have mercy on those who fear him? Will he not return for his own? Will he not bring justice to a world under the tyranny of sin? Of course he will. Don't doubt it. He will. He will. And so we have cause to worship at Christmas. Not because a a baby in a manger makes for a heartwarming story and produces a lot of sentimental melodies. No. We have cause to worship because we have a promise-keeping God who does what He says He will do. He's done it through the ages. He's done it in this woman who He sent His Son through, and He will do it as He seeks to come again, setting the world right and calling us home to be with Him. It was John Francis Wade he died in 1786. He, he summed up all of this in the simple words that we're about to sing. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. He's the central figure of our worship at Christmas. Christmas has become an attempt to hijack our worship to get us to focus on all sorts of things, to get us to worship all sorts of material goods, all sorts of family relationships. But it is Christ who is the Lord. Mary sets the tone for us. I pray that we would follow her as we seek to worship Jesus, our King, this Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we we love you. We thank you so much for your word and, and for this passage preserved for us through the writer Luke where we see the worship of a teenage peasant girl but a woman in whom you chose to fulfill your promises through God I pray that we would realize that there are no little people there are no insignificant figures in the history of this planet That all of us, God, you are calling all of us to certain things, to certain purposes, to recognize your certain promises for us. God, I pray that we would see your goodness in that. God, I pray that we would see the salvation, ultimately, that you give to us by sending Christ, not just to be born into this world, but to die here on a cross atoning for our sin. Lord, all of this causes us to worship. I pray that we do that this Christmas. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
All right, a couple of things just to announce to you as we make our way uh, out of here today. Wednesday night at 5 o'clock, we'll have our Christmas Eve candlelight service. Our lessons and carols service will take place again beginning at 5 o'clock. So we invite you back uh, for that. That's always a special time in the life of our church. Also, next Sunday, the 28th, we'll have one combined worship service at 1030. No Sunday school uh, that day. Uh, either. So just make note of that. Remember that as you head into next Sunday. Uh, 